you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. We right now turn our attention to COVID-19, as we do every day with a medical expert. Today, it's UCLA School of Public Health epidemiologist and professor of medicine, Dr. Timothy Brewer. Dr. Brewer, good morning. Good morning, Larry. Well, it seems as though we're seeing the gradual decline of cases and hospitalizations for the Omicron variant of COVID-19. How are things looking to you? Um, So you're right that we seem to have peaked on the cases, at least for the country as a whole. I wouldn't say we're quite there yet on hospitalizations and deaths, but that's not unusual because they tend to lag about two weeks behind cases. So if you look at the country as a whole, we seem to have peaked, at least in terms of our seven-day average, around January 13th. Our death rates are actually still creeping up a little bit, but not as quickly as they were before. And I assume the death rate is because that is the most lagging indicator. That's exactly right. Uh, Let's talk a bit about uh, Omicron itself as, as we're in this period just past peak. What do we understand now about its transmissibility? What enabled it to come in so quickly and and then retreat as it now appears it, it's starting to do? What is it about the in- infectiousness of it that led to this pattern? So what you need to remember, Larry, is there's only two ways for a variant to displace other variants that are already out there. That variant either needs to be more transmissible than what's already out there, or it has to be able to infect people who are protected against other variants. We call that immune escape. It turned out that Omicron probably had both properties, probably a little more transmissible than Delta, though not a lot more transmissible. But what Omicron could do is infect people who were protected against Delta Alpha Alpha and some of the earlier variants. And that was really its competitive advantage. All right. Time for you to ask questions of Dr. Timothy Brewer, UCLA School of Public Health professor and epidemiologist. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your first name and your location in your email question for Dr. Brewer, 866-893-KPECC. 
efficacy. Moderna said that it's beginning phase two of its clinical trials of an Omicron-specific booster shot. Uh, Moderna's study also finding a drop in antibodies uh, over a six-month period of time, a six-fold drop. Now, we know antibodies are not the full story when it comes to protection against COVID-19, but what do you make of Omicron's release data? So what we're seeing with the studies in the laboratory are pretty consistent, which is regardless of the variant, the neutralizing antibody levels drop over time. But because Omicron had that immune escape, the levels were much lower or actually undetectable against Omicron after two doses, particularly once you were six to seven months out after your last dose. But the, the good news is both with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, and those are the only two I've seen laboratory data for, the booster dose did raise the level of neutralizing antibodies, even against Omicron, about 20 times higher than what they were after the original primary vaccination series one month out. So the boosters do seem to work even against Omicron. So what do you say to people who say, oh, vaccination doesn't work against Omicron? We we hear this refrain despite the data showing a dramatically decreased risk of serious illness from the Omicron variant and of death for people fully vaccinated and boosted. So, you know, what do you say to people who continue to claim, oh, look at all these people getting sick, we're vaccinated, the vaccine doesn't work against Omicron? Omicron. Well, you're exactly right, Larry. It's still protecting against those serious consequences from infection. So because Omicron has that immune escape ability, it's been able to infect people who had either been previously infected or have been vaccinated. But data from California shows that even though Omicron didn't do that, you're still 4.4 times more likely to be infected if you're unvaccinated. You're seven times more likely to be hospitalized. And you're 17 times more likely to die if you get infected than if you're vaccinated. So the vaccines are still working, still very important to protect you against those serious diseases. And then what you need to remember is if you get infected, you can spread that to others. So even if you have mild disease and you get better, that doesn't mean if you infect others, they're going to have mild disease. And vaccination does help to reduce transmission. 866-893-KPECC. John in Long Beach says, I'm a physician and still not clear to me when to advise people who have not been vaccinated but have had COVID when they should get vaccinated after their infection. How long should they wait? So, John, as long as they're asymptomatic, you can go ahead and vaccinate them. If they've gotten monoclonal antibodies for treatment for COVID-19, so they had disease and got monoclonal antibodies as treatment, we recommend waiting 90 days before you vaccinate them. But if they just had disease and no monoclonal antibodies, they're asymptomatic, you can go ahead and vaccinate them. All right, John, thank you. Hugh in Altadena says, I've had COVID for over 10 days and I'm still testing positive on rapid antigen tests. Is it safe to say I'm no longer shedding the virus and contagious or should I continue to isolate now uh, 10 days plus? 
So you should continue to wear a mask, but you're probably no longer infectious. So what we know from studies done early in the pandemic, people can remain positive by PCR or antigen tests as much as 28 to 60 days after they've gotten better. But it's very difficult to culture virus after about 10 days or so. And so that's where the 10-day period comes from. But do wear a mask when you're out in in public. That's just what is an extra precaution? Uh, Extra precaution and and just good public health advice right now because Omicron is still circulating in the community. 866-893-KPECC. Andy in Tustin wonders if Omicron and other COVID variants can be contracted through the eyes. If that's so, is eye protection recommended? If so, what kind of eye protection? So we do wear eye protection in the hospital when we're taking care of COVID patients, particularly if we're doing kinds of procedures that may aerosolize respiratory droplets. But in general, you don't need to wear eye protection if you're just out in the public. Um, Yes, it can get through the eyes because you have mucous membranes and the conjunctiva of your eyes, but that's a relatively uncommon way to do it. The way to protect your eyes is actually to wash your hands. Good hand washing, because people then touch their eyes, will help to prevent you from getting COVID through your eyes. We're talking with UCLA School of Public Health professor and epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Brewer taking your questions at 866-893-KPECC. You can also email your question for Dr. Brewer at atcomments at kpecc.org. And we remind you if you miss any part or all of our daily COVID update with one of our terrific medical experts, it's still available to you. The podcast COVID in LA is our daily COVID feature on AirTalk. You can subscribe to it any place that you get your your audio, Apple Podcasts, or any any of the other major platforms, or by going to kpcc.org. Uh, we have a listener, Bria in Hollywood, who emailed us, I've, I lost my sense of smell when I got COVID back in January of 2021, so a year ago. Since then, I've started to gain it back, but it's still not 100%, and also now suffer from parosmia, where certain smells now smell awful, like garlic, onions, trash. I kept thinking time or the vaccines would help, but so far it's still an issue. Is this part of long COVID? What can I do about it? So it is part of long COVID, and we've had people notice that their sense of smell has not returned after, it sounds in your case like a year, but certainly six months. And there are studies to show that as you get farther out, the number of symptoms does decrease over time. So hopefully things would continue to get better. But what you might do is talk to your primary care doctor about being referred to a specialist involved in the care of patients with long COVID disease. Dr. Brewer, what what sort of damage occurred that caused her to lose her smell over this period of time? What What is repairing itself as she gets better? So unclear, Larry. We do know that the SARS-CoV-2 virus is capable of infecting neurons, and so whether it's actually the neurons that are involved in the sense of smell that were damaged, or it's the respiratory epithelium and the tissue surrounding where the neurons come out in the nose. 
I don't, I haven't seen data to tell us which it is, but it's probably one or the other. If I had to guess, I would say there's probably some neuronal damage there. So it's, it's less likely that, because sometimes, for example, people have a bad cold or something like that. Sinuses will take a long time to recover from that, but it doesn't sound like this is a sinus issue. No, probably not. And actually not unique to SARS-CoV-2. So Actually, the loss of sense of smell has been described with a number of respiratory viral infections, though it's usually transient, meaning it gets better after a period of time. But for reasons we don't understand, not only the loss of sense of smell, but fatigue, myalgias, and other problems seem to be very prolonged with SARS-CoV-2 infection. Another important reason to get vaccinated and boosted, because you can't get long COVID from vaccines or the boosters. You can only get it from infection. And do we think that Omicron, with its generally milder symptoms, is causing as many people to have the loss of taste and smell? Or does it seem to be less common with people who get Omicron? So I actually tried to find data on that after the last time we were together, and I've yet to see any published data on the percentage of long COVID after Omicron. But I'm hoping that as we get more experience with Omicron, those data will come out. At least pre-Omicron, we know that about 20 to 60 percent of individuals could develop long COVID disease after infection with the rate higher in symptomatic individuals, though asymptomatic individuals can get long COVID as well. All right. Uh, Craig in Santa Clarita says, I'm immunocompromised. I've had four total shots. I'm supposed to see five family members soon, some vaccinated, some not. The ones who are not vaccinated had COVID at the beginning of January. Sounds like in that whole Omicron surge. What's my risk level of being around them for a few hours with and without masking on my part? So I don't know what your response is after the after the four doses of vaccine, but in general, I would be careful. So I'd try to keep my interactions to outdoor interactions as much as possible, maintain my physical distancing and have the unvaccinated individuals wear masks because they're more likely to be infected. And if they are infected, they're more likely to transmit COVID than someone who's been vaccinated. Even if they've had COVID as recently as three weeks ago? Even if they've had COVID as much as three weeks ago, it would be unusual to get reinfected that that soon. But, you know, we don't know if they do or they don't have disease right now. Chances of them being infectious three weeks out would be very, very low, but it's not zero. Would your advice be for people who are significantly immunocompromised that they should always be trying to get together with people outdoors instead of in, that they should be masking it at all times when when they're away from home? Well, I, I think the best thing for people who have an immunocompromising condition is to talk with their primary health care doctor or whoever takes care of them, particularly their immunocompromised 
immunocompromised disease because it's going to depend on why they're immunocompromised and for how long. We do actually have treatments available to us now to give to immunocompromised individuals a combination of monoclonal antibodies to try and protect them from getting infected. And those treatments tend to last for about six months. So certain individuals may be candidates for those treatments. So if you're immunocompromised, touch base with your healthcare provider to find out if this combination of monoclonal antibodies may be appropriate for you. Dr. Brewer, you you probably saw that a 15-month-old has died of COVID-19, the youngest victim of COVID-19 in Los Angeles County. We don't have any other information about any comorbidities or or other things that might have been going on with the child, but but your thoughts about uh, this this tragic circumstance? Yeah, so so any any death from COVID nineteen is is a tragedy and a another reason to get vaccinated and boosted because we don't have vaccines right now for for children that age. So we need to be doing our part by trying to protect them as as much as possible by making sure everyone five and older eligible for vaccination has been vaccinated. That having been said, it's been it's a very uncommon occurrence. So in in California, they they only break down deaths as under 17 year olds, and that accounts for 0.1 percent of the deaths in California and yet they make up 22.5% of the population. If you look at the U.S. as a whole, there have been 368 deaths in zero to four-year-olds out of the roughly 870,000 deaths we've had in the country as a whole. There have only been 235 deaths in five to 11-year-olds. So, so while very tragic to hear, it is a very uncommon occurrence. As you probably know, Dr. Brewer, there is a bill in Sacramento which would remove the personal exemption uh, under the statewide vaccine mandate for kids attending school. Um, Sacramento City Unified School District has had so few of its students who are eligible for vaccination getting vaccinated, it's decided to push its mandate back to the end of February because they're just concerned that such a huge number of their students are going to stay home as a result of being unvaccinated, that it's going to be a real problem educationally for those kids. I know there are other districts contemplating similar pushback of, of their deadlines for vaccination. I'm curious your thoughts about this, particularly as as we're likely to see Omicron continue its decline in the weeks to come. Do you think it makes sense for some of these districts to to push back or or to not uh, make a full requirement for vaccination, given in some parts of the state families are very resistant? So uh, I think the real question is what is driving that resistance and how do we help address it and get people to understand the importance of vaccination? Let's let's take California. So depending on who you believe, California has had somewhere between 7.6 and 8 million cases of COVID and just over uh, 78,000 deaths since the start of the the pandemic. To go to school in California, you have to be vaccinated against polio, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, measles, mumps, 
rubella, hepatitis B, and varicella or chickenpox. I suspect the individuals who are resistant to vaccine have never in their lives seen a single case of polio, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, measles, mumps, rubella, or hepatitis B. And yet their kids are vaccinated against all those diseases. Every single one of them probably knows someone who has had COVID. So you have to ask the question, why are you resistant to getting your child vaccinated against COVID when you know someone who's had the disease and yet you've had them vaccinated against all these diseases you've probably never even seen? Well, I think some parents are... Are making the calculus. Well, the vaccine has not received its final authorization from the FDA. As you just said, um, with kids, when they get COVID, they're typically mild cases or asymptomatic. We do have tragic circumstances where where other bad things happen, including myocarditis. But um, but that the parent, you know, who's who's resistant to the vaccine is going to say. I'd rather give it, you know, get, I know how serious tetanus can be or these other illnesses, but I don't see COVID-19 as that big a threat. And, and, and so I'm going to wait. Well, as you said, Larry, we just learned about a 15-month-old who died of, of COVID. So it can be extremely serious. And while deaths are extremely rare from COVID, as I said, they're not zero. So they're 368 deaths in the country in zero to four-year-olds. I suspect none of these parents have ever seen a death from any one of those other diseases that, that they've been vaccinated. These are incredibly safe vaccines. So let's talk about myocarditis. There's a study published in JAMA this, this past week looking at over 354 million doses of SARS-CoV-2 vaccine in the U.S. population. And the risk of myocarditis was about 7 per 100,000 in 12 to 15-year-old males, so much higher in males, about 10 times higher in males than females, and about 10 per 100,000 in 16 to 7-year-olds, 17-year-olds. The risk of myocarditis from the disease, COVID-19, is three to four times higher than that. And everybody who got myocarditis from vaccination, both in the Israeli study that was published in the New England Journal this past week and the JAMA study, had mild disease so far. No serious consequences from the myocarditis from vaccination. So these are safe vaccines that protect you against a serious disease. And and yet um, that doesn't seem to be convincing uh, in some parts of the state, significant numbers of families. So, you know, what does that leave school districts to do? Have the majority of kids do online instruction indefinitely or lose those kids to homeschooling? I, I mean, districts are in a tough position. They are in a tough position. And I think part of it is we have to do a better job of understanding why the resistance to the vaccine? Because um, Pfizer vaccine is actually fully FDA approved. So you can't make the argument that I don't want to give a vaccine because it's not FDA approved. That's not true for the Pfizer vaccine. And the Pfizer vaccine is authorized in kids five and five and older. So that covers everybody who goes to 
to school. So, so I think we need to understand what's driving that resistance and see what we can do to try to address it and recognize that this is in all our best interest because Omicron and SARS-CoV-2 is not going to go away. We're talking with Dr. Timothy Brewer, UCLA School of Public Health professor and noted epidemiologist, 866-893-KPECC. Let's talk with Doug in Pasadena. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. Hi there. Uh, I have a quick question regarding um, whether or not I can get worse symptoms. I take care of my two-year-old granddaughter. Uh, she became symptomatic, and so I was asked and, and was tested positive. I was asked by my children, who uh, are her parents, to test myself. I then tested positive, although I am completely asymptomatic. So my question is, uh, should I continue to take care of my granddaughter, or does that put me at greater risk of becoming symptomatic uh, because I'm exposed to her and she is symptomatic? So, so no, you're, you're already infected, and it's not like you're going to get more infected from her. Um, Actually, you should be in isolation now because you have tested positive. So optimally, you're in isolation and, and she's in isolation. If you are caring for her, make sure you're washing your hands well. Make sure you're wearing a mask. Try to keep away from your children and other people who may not be infected yet so that you don't spread that infection to others. Um, but no, you're not at risk for getting more infection. All right. Doug, thanks very much. 866-893-KPCC. Uh, we have Christine in the San Gabriel Valley. I work in the neonatal intensive care unit. We have a strict visitation policy. If you're unvaccinated, you need to have a negative test every 72 hours. If you test positive, however, you don't need to have a negative test after isolation to visit anymore because you're supposed to be immune for 90 days. Is that true? Can you not catch COVID for 90 days after having it? So you, you, you can, but it's, it's very uncommon. So the reason we don't retest people is, as we know from the earlier caller and earlier discussion, people can remain test positive for a long period of time and not be contagious. Uh, but it is possible to be reinfected within 90 days, but that would be very unusual. All right. Uh, Dania in Los Feliz says, I received a J&J vaccine back in March, then got a Moderna booster in October. Should I get another booster five to six months later, say in March or April of this year? No. So uh, one dose uh, of Johnson & Johnson is considered fully vaccinated. So you now have gotten a booster on top of your fully vaccination. So you don't need any additional boosters or shots at this time unless you have an underlying immunocompromising condition, in which case you should talk with your primary health care doctor about whether or not additional doses of primary vaccination would be indicated. FT tweeted us at AirTalk, what is the percentage of unvaccinated versus vaccinated uh, on deaths and hospitalizations? 
So as I mentioned earlier, you're about in the state of California right now. Data from about January 10th, I think, is the most recent data. You're about four times more likely to be infected with SARS-CoV-2 if you were unvaccinated versus vaccinated, seven times more likely to be hospitalized, and 17 times more likely to die from COVID-19 if you were unvaccinated versus vaccinated. Nancy emailed us. Please remember to include your location. What about other vaccines available but not yet approved in this country? Covaxin from India, AstraZeneca, Novaxin, etc. Some of us don't want an mRNA vaccine. So uh, at the moment, they're the only non-mRNA vaccine authorized for use in the United States is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We tend to recommend the mRNA vaccine over Johnson & Johnson because of the uncommon risk of blood clots associated with Johnson & Johnson. But talk to your primary care doctor about whether or not that would be appropriate for you. While People who have been vaccinated with a World Health Organization approved vaccine, recognized vaccine are considered fully vaccinated by the CDC. Those vaccines are not yet available in the United States. Uh, we had Dr. Monica Gandhi of UCSF, the infectious disease expert, on last week, and she was bluntly very highly critical of the FDA for uh, sitting on the application, as she put it, uh, of Covaxin, because she thought it would be uh, an important addition to the available vaccines in in this country. And she um, didn't know the reason why the FDA hadn't acted on it. Do you have any information on on why that might be, Dr. Brewer? I I don't. um, It's a protein-based vaccine, so it would be a a different approach. This is a technology that has been used in other vaccines. Maybe that would make some people more comfortable with with receiving it uh, compared to mRNA vaccines, which we have not had available in this this country before. It's also very stable at room temperature. It's easy to store. Uh, And the efficacy data, at least the initial data, which were before Omicron, looked very good. So hopefully it will become available, but it would be also useful to see data against Omicron as well. Yeah. And I, as I recall, her argument was in part why she thought that it would be good to have it available is, is that um, f- for people who get it, they would see more of the virus, I guess, as opposed to spike proteins and that that it might have a, a broader degree of effectiveness against v- different variants. Does, does that make sense to you? I, I haven't seen any data to to suggest that. Um, it might be possible, but always good to see data rather than guess. All right. Let me share another listener question. Um, Mark in Pacific Palisades emailed us, are the mRNA vaccines so specifically designed to target a specific protein that they allow for variants to evade the immunity they promote? If so, how difficult would it be to design a vaccine with much broader coverage? Or is it just too hard to predict the direction the variants will mutate into? So the the challenge right now, Mark, is the the vaccines target the part of the virus that is most immunogenic, meaning most likely to change. So 
It targets the spike protein, which is the part that binds to the cell and is recognized by antibodies and specifically the receptor binding domain. And because that's the part that changes the most, that's why Omicron, with a lot of changes in that part of the virus, was able to have immune escape. People are working on vaccines to target other parts of the virus not available yet, but I think that is a very active research strategy. Dr. Brewer, thank you as always for joining us. It's such a pleasure. We appreciate you very much. And our thanks to all your colleagues at UCLA Public Health as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in LA. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.